Okay, we are continuing together today our study in our confession of faith on the subject of the um, last judgment from chapter 32. And we are focusing together on paragraph 3, which deals with the timing of the day of judgment. The timing of the day of judgment. Now, this... um, Paragraph emphasizes two ideas. It emphasizes the idea that it is certain there will be a day of judgment. And it also emphasizes the idea that the exact day on which that judgment is going to occur is unknown. So um, let's read the paragraph together. We'll review what we covered last time and then we'll take up where we left off. Paragraph Uh, 3 says, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So last time, in considering together the timing of the Day of Judgment, we started to look at the fact that it is certain there will be a Day of Judgment. And we talked about the effect of the certainty of the knowledge that there will be a day of judgment. And so we considered together that the effect of this knowledge deters us from sin. Notice the confession says, as Christ would have us be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment to deter all men from sin. And so we talked about the fact that it certainly de- deters the ungodly from sin in that if they know that they are going to be judged and punished for their sins, it deters them from committing sin. Uh, very oftentimes because of the uh, conviction of conscience and because the fear of punishment, uh, the wicked do not do as much wickedness as crosses their mind. Furthermore, since the Bible makes it clear that there are degrees of punishment in hell, even for the wicked, the less they sin, the better off they are as they spend eternity in hell because the less punishment they endure as a result of their stay there. Now, the least punishment in hell is unendurable, but um, nevertheless, the Bible says that... um, there is certainly um, differing degrees of punishment of those who are in hell based upon how much wrath they have treasured up unto the day of wrath and righteous judgment of God. And so the Bible speaks about some in hell being beaten with many stripes and some with few stripes. And uh, the idea there is that the punishment will be in proportion to the sinfulness. And this, of course, is parallel to Uh, we who are in heaven. Um, Anyone who is in heaven is infinitely blessed, just like anyone who is in hell is infinitely miserable, and yet 
in heaven there's going to be degrees of reward. Some will be rewarded more and some less based on their service to Christ. And in the same way in hell, anyone who is in hell is in infinite misery, but some have greater misery than others. Um, so um, to be in heaven is unspeakably wonderful, and yet there are degrees of blessing. To be in hell is infinitely miserable, and yet there are degrees of misery there as well. All right, so the effect of this knowledge deters all men from sin. It deters the ungodly from sin because they know that God is going to punish them. It also deters the godly from sin because we recognize that we too will be judged and that we cannot live in sin and say that we had faith in Christ. And so it deters us from sin as well because those who say, I know him, and yet keep not his commandments are found on that day to be liars and the truth is not in them. So if we claim to be Christians, we recognize that we can only have a good outcome on the day of judgment if we live like Christians. Because those who do not live uh, like Christians uh, demonstrate that they're not Christians at all and thus they... Uh, do not have a good outcome on the day of judgment either. So we looked at a number of passages in relationship to those two sets of truth, and we recognize that um, the effect of the knowledge of the day of judgment, both on the ungodly as well as the godly, is to deter them all from sin. All right, any questions about that? That was a couple weeks ago. All right, well, today we want to move on then to the second effect of the certainty of the day of judgment. And that is not only does it deter all men from sin, but it's also for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. Now, notice the godly experience adversity and the godly need consolation in their adversity. And the question is, where does the consolation come from and how do you obtain it? Well, there are lots of consolations for us, but one of the great consolations for us is that there is going to be a day of judgment. And the knowledge of that gives us encouragement in the face of our sorrows. Now, <clears throat> let's look at a couple of passages the first one is in 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One of the adversities that we as Christians experience is certainly the death of our loved ones who uh, know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And what is the consolation that we have in the face of the death of our loved ones? Well, the consolation that we have in the faith of our dead ones, in the face of, of the death of our loved ones, is that Jesus Christ is going to come back on the day of judgment and there will be a resurrection, a reunion, and a fellowship together with them for all eternity and that is a source of comfort. Notice 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. 
It says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as the thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief." Now, I know there's a chapter break between chapters 4 and 5, and you notice I ignored it and just read right through. And the reason why is because the wonderful things that happen in chapter 4 occur when the terrible things happen that are recorded in chapter 5. Namely, when Jesus returns and he brings sudden destruction upon the wicked, and of course that happens on the day of judgment, that's when the resurrection and the rapture of the believers is going to occur. Okay? Both of those events occur at the same time. They occur together. They occur when the final judgment occurs. And so, what we see here is that here we are in adversity, and one of the adversities that we experience is the death of our loved ones who know the Lord, and what's the comfort we have in the face of that? Well, it's that there's going to be a resurrection, there's going to be a reunion, and there's going to be a fellowship together with them throughout all eternity. And that's one reason why we look forward to this day of judgment, because that's when it's all going to happen. So when we think about the day of judgment coming, we're excited because that's the day of reunion, that's the day of comfort. That's the day of the restoration uh, to fellowship with all those who know Christ that we long to see again who have predeceased us. The second source of consolation that we have is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And this deals with the consolation of God dealing with our enemies. We have the consolation of the reuniting with our loved ones, but we also have the consolation of the punishment of our enemies, those who have persecuted us. Now notice 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or fitting, because that your faith grows exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounds so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So here are these believers at Thessalonica, okay? Their faith is growing. Their love is expanding. They're exercising patience and faith. And for that, they are persecuted. Okay? 
And the clear uh, experience of the people of God is, is that the more they walk with God, the more they live for God, the more the wicked hate them and the greater the persecutions and tribulations that they attempt to bring upon them. And uh, we can see that in the hate speech legislation that's going through um, our Congress right now. And that is, is that they want to shut up the Christians from speaking out against sin. And so if we say homosexuality is wrong and it's a sin and the people who engage in that need to repent and that that particular behavior ought to be sanctioned by the law, um, that's hate speech and they'll throw us in jail for it just simply because we're representing God's mind and God's truth uh, from the scriptures. And so he says, <clears throat> verse 5, that this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you might be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also you suffer. You see, the righteousness of God in owning us as those who are worthy of the kingdom of God is going to be vindicated by the fact that we have endured persecutions. God is going to say, this person is a, is, is a Christian, and people are going to go, well, why? Well, because they remain faithful to Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution. And this is what is the manifest token of the righteousness of God's judgment that we belong in the kingdom of God. You see, if God just swept people into the kingdom of God willy-nilly, then His judgment would be arbitrary. But no, God is righteous in deciding who gets to go in. And the vindication of the righteousness of His judgment is predicated upon the fact that those that He brings in are those who have endured persecution for His name's sake. And thus, he is vindicated in his assessment that they are, in fact, genuine Christians. Notice verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those that trouble you. Now, here's the comfort. Okay, God's going to bring justice. We don't have to get vengeance ourselves. God will get vengeance. Verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When? Well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all those who believe. And why did they believe? Well, it says in parentheses there, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So, when are we going to be delivered from our persecutors? On the day of judgment. When are our persecutors going to be righteously punished for their persecutions of us? On the day of judgment. And that's why our confession says that... Um, uh, the day of judgment is for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. 
You know, death is an adversity. But on the day of judgment, the resurrection is going to occur. And that adversity is going to be resolved. Persecution is an adversity. But on the day of judgment, our persecutors are going to be punished and our persecutions will all end. And so we look forward to the day of judgment for the blessing of the resurrection and for the blessing of deliverance from persecution. The third passage we want to look at is 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter's right after Hebrews. It's Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, we'll start reading together at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a lively hope, or a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein, that is, wherein this future um, promise is going to be revealed, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, there is an incredible amount of truth there that we could spend several hours talking about. But the point that I want to make from this passage is simply this, is that right now we go through trials. Now, we've already talked about persecutions, and of course, persecutions are part of the trials. But we go through a lot of trials that really have nothing to do with somebody you know, overtly persecuting us. They just have to do with the fact that we live in a fallen world. We are fallen creatures. And as a result, we experience a lot of really um, negative things in our lives. For example, uh, the health problems we have. Um, those are trials. It's not like somebody came along and, you know, imposed arthritis on us or headaches or whatever the case may be. But nevertheless, we have tremendous trials in our lives. Um, we have disappointments in the way things work out. Um, we see um, providences that occur that um, produce a tremendous amount of stress in our lives. And um, as a result, we uh, constantly feel under pressure and under the gun uh, in terms of the kind of providential circumstances that occur to us. He says, now you were in heaviness, and the idea there is of grief, through 
manifold or multifaceted is the idea there, um, tribulations or temptations or trials. But when are these trials going to end? Well, at the appearing of Jesus Christ, verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory when at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So one of the things we look forward to, uh, and one of the reasons why we look forward to the day of judgment, is that all our trials are going to end, whatever they are. Our persecutions are going to end, whoever brings them. And our separation from our dead loved ones in Christ is going to end, however long it's been. And so we look forward to the day of judgment with joy, with delight, with anticipation, because that's when all of our blessings are going to culminate. And that's when we're going to receive the full expression of our salvation. Notice it says in verse 5, we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it's not to say you don't have salvation now, but it is to say that the full impact and expression of that salvation, full application of it, won't be experienced until the end. And so when Jesus comes back, we'll have everything that he purchased for us. Uh, I know that uh, my wife has the habit of purchasing uh, presents uh, for my children in particular and, and sometimes for me. And she'll, she'll buy the whole lot of whatever it is. And then, you know, over a number of birthdays and Christmases, she'll dole it out, you know, a piece here and a piece there until finally, maybe, you know, two or three years down the road after half a dozen birthdays and Christmases, you have the whole thing. And she had purchased it all at the beginning and she had planned to give it all to you, but you didn't get it all at once. Okay. And that's kind of what God does. He gives us a lot right up front in terms of justification and in terms of uh, sanctification begun and regeneration. And then he doles it out through the years and the decades as we grow in faith in Christ. And then on the day of judgment, he gives to us the remainder and thus we possess the totality. And that's what is going on here. So these are just three passages that talk about the blessings that are brought to us on the day of judgment, the resolution of the sorrows of death, a resolution of the persecutions that come to us, and a resolution of all the trials that we experience. And so Christ would have us be certainly persuaded that there is a day of judgment for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. All right. Any comments, questions, or observations? So are, are we afraid of the day of judgment? We're not. We're excited about it. We can't wait to get there. And uh, so it's kind of like death, you know. Um, for the Christian... It's like Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Death goes from being a terror before you're saved to being a delight, you know, afterwards because it's the doorway to heaven. 
And so the day of judgment before you're saved is a terror, but after you're saved, the day of judgment is a joy and a delight to look forward to. And Christ makes all the difference. Christ is the one who transforms death and judgment from terror to blessing. And so we need to really love our Lord Jesus for achieving that marvelous transformation for us. All right. Well, let's move on then to the second major point in this paragraph. Having seen, it is certain there will be a day of judgment. The effect of this knowledge is to deter us from sin, and it is a source of consolation. Notice, secondly, the exact day of that judgment is unknown. Now, I'm going to do a little selective reading in the confession just to pick up the continuity. It says, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded there will be a day of judgment, so will he have that day unknown to men. Now, Jesus says it's going to happen, it's absolutely certain it will happen, but I'm not going to tell you when. And then the confession tells us the biblical reasons why we don't know. And it offers three reasons. One, that they may shake off all carnal security. Two, that they may be always watchful. And three, that they may be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus. Those are the three reasons that are offered in our confession. So let's look at each of those in turn. First of all, the exact day of the judgment is unknown because it keeps us from carnal security. Now, if you know that um, the final exam in uh, your school class is not for three more weeks, you know that this weekend, you don't have to worry about it, you can go play. Right? Because, you know, it's not till way down there. I don't have to get ready for it. I know when it is. But if you didn't know whether the teacher was going to pop the final exam on you on Monday or three weeks from Monday, when the weekend rolled around, you go, you know what? The final might be on Monday. So instead of going out and playing this weekend, I better put my nose in the books. Right? Okay. So that's what's being said here. Now, turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 24, verses 42 to 51. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24, verses 42 to 51. He says in verse 42, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Now there's the uncertainty, right? You don't know. But know this, here's what you do know. That if the goodman of the house, that is the steward of the house, had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is that faithful and wise servant, 
whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant who his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of the servants shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, you see, the problem with this evil servant is he had carnal security. He says, my Lord is delaying his coming. He's not going to come back for a long time. I can just live uh, in any old way I want. And I'll have plenty of time to get ready and get things in order and get things squared away before the master comes. Now, I've heard people say many times, well, you know, while I'm young, I want to have a good time. I want to sow my wild oats. I want to live in all of my carnal pleasures. And later on, when I'm 40 or 50 years old, then I'll get right with God. And then I'll prepare myself for heaven. And that's the mentality that's condemned here. And the reason why it's condemned is you don't know how much time you've got. You don't know how much time you've got to live and you don't know how much time there is before Christ returns. And so um, we all know of people that we never expected to die. Young people who died in accidents or died because of illness or died because of uh, murder or all sorts of reasons. And so none of us knows the day of our death. None of us is guaranteed any particular length of life. And so therefore, we don't know when we're going to have to face Jesus personally at our death. And then, of course, the second thing is, is that we don't know when he's going to come back. And if we don't die uh, and he comes back in our lifetime, we don't know if he's going to come back when we're 20 or we're 30 or we're 40 or we're 50. So... What is being warned against here is this carnal security that says, my Lord is delaying his coming. I'm going to live carelessly and I've got plenty of time. And it says, notice verse 50, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him. He thinks he's still got plenty of time and suddenly it's accountability time. Suddenly it's test time and he's not ready. And what happens to this individual? He's cast into hell. That's what it says in verse 51. He shall cut him asunder, point him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does a Christian do? A Christian lives with the attitude and the mentality that, you know what, Jesus can come back at any time, either for me personally in death, or he could come back at any time for the end of the world, and therefore I need to be ready for that second coming. And I need to live in such a way as so that I will be found to be faithful and wise. Notice verse 44. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man comes, who then is a faithful and wise servant, 
whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give him his meat in due season. Notice his outcome. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. And you know, um, it's every preacher's secret wish to die while he's preaching. I don't know if you knew that or not. But, um, you know, to be found in the harness doing your work uh, when Jesus returns for you. And the idea is that uh, we want to be found doing the master's work when the master returns. And uh, if, if you were suddenly to die of a heart attack, what, what would you want to have been doing in the 15 seconds before you died of the heart attack? Well, you, <laughs> you would want to have been found living for Christ, right? And uh, there's a passage we want to look at in 1 John uh, chapter uh, 3. 1 John, it's way back at the back of your Bible, chapter 2, pardon me. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, 1 John 2, 28, abide in Him, that is, Remain in fellowship with Christ that, in order that, when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. And so, um, you know, <laughs> have you ever had the experience where you're doing something that you had not to be doing and somebody walks in the room and you kind of go, kind of jump? We've all had that happen to us. You caught with your hand in the cookie jar, right? And, uh, and that's what he's talking about here. When Christ shows up at any time, we need to be able to go, wow, I'm glad you're here. Not, uh-oh. So that's what uh, the uncertainty of the day of judgment does. It says to us, you know, I need to be living for Christ today because today might be the final exam. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he's coming back. Thank you that that's something that we can look forward to. Lord, help us to live every day for him so that when he comes, we will be ready and that we will be able to lift up our faces and, and rejoice because our redemption draws near. Father, I pray that you would help us to live every day as though it is our last and live in such a way that we will be found uh, as faithful ser servants and uh, so that Jesus will be able to say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Father, give us grace to be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.